from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, we'll talk about the job market in the post-COP21 world, what environmental activists think about the role of business in meeting the world's climate goals, and how one company is integrating the outcome of COP21 into its business plans. It's the world post-Paris this week on 350. It's Friday, December 18th, 2015. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. My usual co-host, Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler, is off on a well-deserved European holiday. So joining me today is Shauna Rappaport, Director of Engagement at Verge. Welcome, Shauna. Thanks so much, Joel. Delighted to be with you. So uh, you and I and Lauren and Pete were all in Paris. So you, uh, you've been back for almost a week. Uh, what's your, first of all, are you back? Back. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. My head is still spinning for sure. I think I'm at the tail end of the jet lag, but um, definitely just integrating what was unquestionably the experience of a lifetime. I mean, felt like we were really operating at the heart of the climate movement in all of its glory. Um, and I had the good fortune of really just spending so much time with such a broad spectrum of people. So really integrating everything I learned and, and, and focusing on how we move forward from here. And you were sort of on a different track than than Lauren and I were. That uh, you we, we connected just really once or twice over the course of the week. But you were spending time with uh, with a different crowd. You were, first of all, you were there uh, wearing both your green biz hat, but also your hat uh, on the board of of Project Drawdown, um, which you can give a elevator pitch on just so everyone knows what that is. But you were in the course of that going to a very different kind of events. And we'll talk a little bit about later on with you about some of what you learned about sort of how activists think about business. But how would you characterize the crowd you were hanging with? Yeah, I mean, hard to characterize because in so many ways it was, I mean, it, civil society is made up of so many threads. Um, you know, Project Drawdown is is a is a fantastic organization. I, I am on the board, but objectively, I think, you know, we're doing really, really important work to really do the math on about 100 of the most impactful solutions to climate change. So we've built a global coalition in Paris. I had the good fortune of meeting many of our international fellows who are really doing extensive research to look at individual solutions from smart grid to girls education to regenerative agriculture and actually calculate the ecological and economic financial returns on accelerating and scaling those solutions in in the next 30 years so i was hanging out with a um with a really really interesting and diverse crowd of folks and were they as hopeful i mean the business crowd at, at all these events so rio plus 20 or climate week in new york or uh, even COP in Copenhagen, uh, the ones that I've been to, uh, you know, they tend to be pretty optimistic, at least the people who are there are the ones that are the, the leaders, the doers, the active companies. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of a bubble, but uh, I was just wondering whether the activists or, or the, the, this crowd that you were hanging with, however you characterize them, were hopeful. You know, it's a good question. And I think the honest answer is yes and no. And in many ways, it's reflective of kind of how I'm feeling right now um, in, in the post-Paris world. You know, the deal is is done and 
how we move forward from here. Part of me wants to celebrate and the other part of me feels really disappointed. And, and I think both are real. And I think a lot of the folks with whom I was spending time really recognized that especially coming out of the agreement and, 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 and what, was, what was delivered, there is, you know, historic is being used rightfully. This was a, a truly historic moment. And, uh, and, you know, we still have a lot of work to be done. You know, systems change, not climate change is a meme that was pretty pervasive throughout the civil society crowd. And I think they really recognize that, you know, talking just about emissions reductions, greenhouse gases, and frankly, climate change alone is, is really just one piece of a much larger, uh, larger picture here. It reminds me of Puck Mickleby, former Marine colonel now, uh, looking at, at a grand strategy for America around embed sustainability. And we had a great conversation when we first met on stage at Verge Boston. And at the end of this, Marine colonel, former bomber pilot uh, who's deep in sustainability and has this great vision. I asked him, are you, where on the scale are you from you know, optimistic to, to pessimistic about you know, the world based on, on what you know? And he says, well, I'm very, very, very optimistic and very, very, very pessimistic. And I think that sort of sums up where a lot of us think about, uh, I mean, it's very hopeful what happened is it was historic, but it's still a lot of work to be done and still kind of scary. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of, of Paul Hawken, who is the co-founder with Amanda Joy Ravenhill of Project Drawdown, and, and also, frankly, of, of David Orr um, right now, both of whom have, have different perspectives on the word hope. And David, I love this quote, you know, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up, you know, and that's where I think we really, it's going to come down to harnessing that hope and in, into putting it into real action. Great. Well, let's roll up our sleeves and get into the Week in Review. So each week on Green Biz 350, we take a look at some of the stories that we've covered this week. And we're, it was kind of a world post-Paris. And, uh, you know, after COP21, what, what does that look like? And how are, what are some of the reactions? And the first thing I want to talk about are cities. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about government and policy and the corporate response. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit later about the NGO civil society response. But cities is a part that we haven't talked as much about um, and yet was a very, uh, very large presence in Paris in terms of organizations and events and commitments that were made. And Shauna, you wrote a piece this week uh, uh, summarizing some of four of the key uh, initiatives or reports or outcomes from Paris, but there are a lot more than that. Can you give us a little flavor of what the conversation was about cities and climate in Paris? Yeah, well, as as we know so well, you know, 70% of global emissions are coming from cities. There's a mass exodus towards them by mid-century. You know, I think 50% of the global population, 70% of the global population will be living in cities. So there certainly is some of the, you know, source of our greatest challenges, but equally so of, of our opportunities. And I think that was really, really felt and pervasive outside of Le Bourget in Paris. You know, the, the action at the local level from city governments, from the alliances they're building, the coalitions were, were felt really strong. I think there were something like over 300, 300 mayors in Paris that week um, coming together, making side commitments, making agreements together to push beyond the, the goals being set 
said and put forward by the by the Paris Agreement and really take the future of of, of climate uh, climate action and climate leadership into their own hands. So what were some of the kinds of commitments they're making? Is it just around the th- things you would expect, renewable energy and uh, I don't know, what, what were some of the things did you hear that maybe surprised you a little? Yeah, surprise is a good question. I mean, a lot of the conversations really do come back to energy and and, and emissions reductions. And, you know, in the context of COP, I think that was naturally a a primary focus. you know, one of the things that was surprising and pleasantly surprising was to really see the coming together. I mean, I had few moments throughout the week where I was really proud to be a Californian. You know, Jerry Brown here in California spearheaded an initiative called the Under 2 MOU, which brought together subnational uh, governments and other partners to really commit to um, emissions reductions that keep us under two degrees warming. And the number of cities, city governments that are pushing beyond the 80% reduction by 2050 and saying we're going to get farther and sooner um, is really, really affirming. And even on the business events, we heard a lot about this and something that we've spent time on at Verge, Shauna, talking about public-private partnerships between cities and technology companies or companies of all types. Um, that seemed to be, uh, there seems to be a growing appetite for you know, how the public and private sectors play together um, to advance uh, low carbon technologies and uh, and and also you know the other th- thread here that's it's non-trivial is the the uh, sustainable development goals that were enacted or passed by the United Nations in September uh, that you know really fully integrate the social piece into this. So there was a lot more talk about equity and opportunity and some of the things that we talked about at Verge and particularly at City Summit. Um, where, you know, the private sector is really tuning in. And I think, I think and hope is certainly more than lip service, uh, they're really looking at how does the private sector play uh, partner with cities, not just around technologies, but around creating more opportunity. Did you get pick up some of that too at the events you were at? Absolutely. Well, it's certainly true at the city scale. I mean, it's easy to get distracted and think, you know, focus on the technology solutions. But as we as we say with Verge, you know, this is about improving people's lives. And certainly, you know, mayors who are living in the places interacting with the people they're serving, I think recognize that at a different level and recognize that this isn't just about, you know, abstract emissions reductions. It's really about how do I or even resilience, you know, in the broadest term, it's like, really about how do I make people's lives better and ensure that that the people living in the places where I'm I'm leading are are um, are, are improved so you wrote this piece about uh, four of the reports and initiatives that came out of this are, are, are any of them specifically related to how the private sector interacts with cities well you know there there is one that stands out the relatedness is more implicit than than explicit but you know our our close allies at USDN the urban sustainability directors network have initiated something in partnership with many other organizations working at the city scale called the carbon neutral cities alliance and it's something to be aware of there are now 17 cities internationally that have committed to this 80 by 50 goal, 80% carbon reduction by uh, by the year 2050. And they soft launched last week um, something called the 80 by 50 framework, which is really a how-to guide for cities who are, who are getting in the deep carbon reduction game. And what I think is really interesting is just recognizing that, you know, 
if cities are going to lead the way, we need not just uh, 20, but literally thousands of cities globally that are going to be committing to these deep carbon reduction goals. And that is a huge business opportunity because they are, as you're saying, you were saying, Joel, going to need alliance and new kinds of partnerships and new kinds of innovation and technologies to help get them there. So, so I'd, uh, I'd encourage everyone to check that out. Yeah, and we've had a number of climate stories, post-COP stories this week on Green Biz, and one of them uh, has to do with, with cities. It's called How Cities and C- Citizens Will Lead in Climate Solutions, written by Jane Lubchenco, who is the uh, Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans for the U.S. government, and uh, more specifically the head of the of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, she talks a little bit about sort of, it's pretty high level. It talks about what she saw um, in terms of uh, some of the events that came together, how uh, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Paris Mayor um, Anne Hidalgo co-hosted the Climate Summit for Local Leaders and convened 500 civic leaders uh, who are uh, engaged in, in carbon solutions. Um, and she talked about some of the other interesting parts of this. So uh, this is certainly something we're going to be talking about a lot more is, is is cities and climate and particularly the role of the private sector in that. turn to a topic I know it's of interest to a lot of you out there. It's the state of sustainability jobs in a post-COP21 world. We ran an article this week uh, by our longtime uh, columnist, Ellen Weinreb, uh, who writes the Talent Show column. Ellen is the CEO of Weinreb Group, which is an executive search firm focused on corporate sustainability, works in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Uh, Ellen, uh, welcome to 350. Thank you, Joel. So that was a really interesting piece because I think it deals with a question a lot of people look at, which is, you know, as we as these companies, cities, countries shift to a low carbon economy, all these new tech investments in technologies, how do I think about my job? How do I think about careers? Um, What's going to change? So tell us a little bit about what you found out. Well, it's been interesting for me to follow COP21 and hearing all the various podcasts and webinars and articles, hearing and learning about the various groups that are bringing business together. And I keep asking myself, well, you know, what does this mean for the sustainability jobs market? I think in general, I see an enormous amount of economic stimulus that will really impact the global economy and it certainly impact the labor markets and it has direct connections to the sustainability jobs market. Okay, that's a good start, but I know people want to get a little bit more specific into obviously there's going to be a lot of renewable energy, but uh, you know, what kinds of how does somebody think about uh, a career at this point, uh, whether you're, I know it depends where you are in your career, whether you're, whether you're in college or, or in your 30s and 40s and thinking about the, your next career or your next phase of your career, let alone those uh, who are already mid and, and late career. But how do we think about this? How do we see, think about what's going to be happening or where the opportunities are? And of course, how to prepare for that? 
Yeah, I think, it, you know, an advice to somebody who is in this position where they're thinking about their career going forward, say, in the maybe next five to ten years, uh, there's this is a bandwagon that I think is a really great opportunity to jump onto and I think just following any um, all, and all of the news that's coming out and, and then maybe taking one thread, um, like you can take uh, looking at one bank uh, that's investing $400 million in developing countries, looking at mitigation and um, adaptation. Um, that, you know, there's, there will be jobs around that. There's also jobs around finance thinking about all the banks that are putting all these millions and trillions into these green funds. Uh, there's um, certainly jobs that are around green finance and carbon financing. So one of the things you did in the article that I thought was interesting, um, and we'll of course link that on the podcast page, is you just took one organization, We Mean Business, which is a coalition of, uh, we've talked about in this podcast before, of, of BSR and the World Business Council and Sustainable Development and Ceres and the Climate Group and the Prince of Wales uh, Leadership Forum and a number of others. And you said, just based on those commitments, here are five uh, examples of positions that will probably develop just from those organizations uh, the companies in those organizations, I guess some hundreds of companies, um, having to fulfill those commitments. Tell us about that. So We Mean Business came up with seven core commitments, and then of their 350 companies that are part of that coalition, um, they've come up with 850 commitments. And if you break that down, um, there, there are things like stakeholder engagement, 100% energy procurement, um, climate policies. So then there's jobs that are directly related to that, like in climate policy, um, there is, you know, it's interesting. We think that, oh, COP21, it's over, but it's not. There's COP22 in Marrakesh next year. There's different countries that are making their own agreements um, following through on them so the policy doesn't end um, last week it continues and so people that have climate policy experience are very valuable um, going forward it doesn't it do, did not end last week and also um, energy procurement 100 percent renewables what does that mean to a company uh, and figuring that out and getting involved in um, renewable energy procurement or, um, or specifically focusing on, let's say, wind or solar. Uh, and then there's all the, the um, research, which is just the tip of the iceberg. I get, and I know you do, lots of questions from people at all stages of their career in terms of what do I do? How do I get into this field? Um, and uh, a lot of people want to specifically be in corporate sustainability. And uh, one of the pieces of advice I give them, for example, is if you want to be effective in, in changing a company's sustainability, uh, stay out of the sustainability department. You know, it sounds counterintuitive, but the fact is that you can be a, you know, go learn something, go learn engineering or science or, in, or marketing or communications or human resources or something and use your 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 green gene in that field i mean how how has the advice that you're giving people and i know that you deal with the executive level searches but i'm sure you you know you hear about a lot of other things and you talk to a lot of 
job seekers just because we all do. What are some of the fields, uh, how has the advice changed uh, or has it changed at all? Uh, not just as a result of COP21, but just as sort of the shifting and growing markets for uh, low-carbon technologies and renewable energy and, and climate solutions in general. Yeah, I think there, there are kind of two points there. One is is just corporate sustainability in general is, I would say, breaking down in terms of the boundaries that were formerly the the sustainability department. It's no longer just the sustainability department. There are often individuals within a company who are working on sustainability but don't report to the chief sustainability officer. And as a result, the, the, the lines are a, a lot more gray, a lot more wavy. And so it means that you can have a sustainability job anywhere in that company and it's not necessarily has sustainability in the title or doesn't necessarily report directly up to the head of sustainability. The other piece I wanted to bring up is related to this economic stimulus and that is looking at these trillions of dollars and where is it going. A big chunk of money is going towards research and development. So um, universities will be the recipients of these grants. This is uh, Bill Gates and his 28, 27 billionaire friends putting that money into research and development. But what comes of that are businesses. It's new technologies that create new businesses. So any one of these businesses um, any one of those positions gonna be, is going to be related to decarbonizing the economy, and it's probably going to have large-scale implications. The customers of these technologies are largely going to be uh, municipalities, uh, public sector. It's quite, it's quite mac- macro. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not seeing that there's a, a gold rush here necessarily, that there's uh, going to be uh, pockets of jobs, and there will be some fields like energy, which uh, energy markets have been shifting for years and distributed and renewable and smart grids and all of that. We've certainly all the stuff that we cover at our Verge conference. Um, But it's not necessarily a whole new industry that's going to be growing up here. These seem to be pockets within existing industries, within transportation, within energy, within supply chain, within, uh, I don't know, just all the different aspects of buildings and transportation. Um, or do you see something else? So COP21, a lot of the agreements are around the year 2030. So I, when you say a gold rush, I, I think it's it's not immediately. This isn't really for the year 2016. This is really over the next th- 15 years um, in terms of the, the new technology and the stimulus. Uh, and then it is it is definitely industry specific. I was uh, listening to the BSR webinar yesterday, and they were highlighting the agriculture industry, uh, who's they're trying to figure out around um, carbon capture and soil, and um, and certainly the transportation, you know, all of these industries. So it absolutely is um, very in- industry specific. Your main business now is focusing on executive searches uh, around the world uh, for sustainability professionals. How has that changed, or how do you anticipate that changing in the coming months and years? That's a good question, Joel. Um, I think that that there's 
heads, chief sustainability officers, the executives who are in this role, have a shift in their role because it's now focusing more on decarbonizing. Like, for example, um, Hannah Jones from Nike um, was saying that recent valuation of Nike had attributed um, or incre- investors had increased their valuation by $6 billion related to energy. And that is, um, that's an, ex- an example of somebody whose job was in redesigning shoes, let's say, and reducing waste has, has shifted towards energy decarbonizing um, and playing a role in climate policy on a global level. So that is how these executives' jobs have sh- has shifted. So they're becoming more strategic. I mean, Hannah Jones at Nike, is her job is is one of the few that combines both sustainability and innovation, and maybe we'll see more of that. In fact, it sounds like we're going to see a lot of things shifting uh, over time as, as companies figure out where they, uh, how they traverse this journey uh, to the low-carbon economy. But uh, we'll, we'll continue watching this story and reading your talent show column every month on uh, Green Biz, uh, Ellen Weinreb from the Weinreb Group. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Joel. So, Shauna, as you well know, just before you headed to Paris, I suggested an assignment. I'm not sure you can suggest an assignment, but that's where the, the way I roll. Um, and I, what I was really interested in, since you were going to be spending a bunch of the two weeks you were there with civil society, NGO, the activist crowd, wh- however we label them, what do they think about business? What's their perception of the business role in in COP, in climate change in general? Are they, uh, do they think it's greenwashed? Are they encouraged by what they're seeing? So um, what'd you find out? Well, thanks again for the assignment, Joel. I had a lot of fun and it was it was really interesting to kind of have this lens through through out the course of my experience and turn on my microphone and 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 invite people to respond to these questions and you know what was really surprising to me actually is how much has cut through um, and really corporate sustainability leadership is making it onto the radar um, far more extensively than I recognize, particularly around renewable energy commitments. Um, and I think that may be, again, in the in, in the context of COP and talking about uh, climate and greenhouse gas uh, reductions, you know, People are people are recognizing that many companies are are making big strides when it comes to to um, decarbonizing their operations and moving towards renewable energy. At the same time, there was unquestionably a resounding theme that you know we as a global society will not be effective in uh, in really achieving our our cl- the climate agenda um, if unless uh, business and 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 private sector and industry really fundamentally transform the way that they create value for society. So you did write a piece around this week on Green Biz, uh, 
called A Change of Climate and How Activists View Business. Um, but you've got some some tape here of some of the voices, some of the people you talk to. Uh, and we'd love to hear sort of bring bring those voices to the to the Green Biz 350 audience. Tell us a little bit about who you talked to and some of the things that they had to say. Sure. Well, you know, one one uh, actually spent two evenings at a really fantastic event called Pathway to Paris, which I think I actually may have mentioned in last week's webcast, brought together a lot of the leading luminaries, Bill McKibben, uh, Naomi Klein, uh, Vandana Shiva in the in the, the climate movement and um, and had the opportunity to to connect with Jamie Henn there, who's one of the founders of, of 350.org, which has really been at the heart and leading the charge of the divestment movement. And it was really interesting to hear from Jamie, his perspective on, um, on, on how optimistic he is about the opportunities for business to not just divest, which which we're seeing in 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 troves, but um, really think about what they're what they're uh, reinvesting in as we move forward. You know, we run this big fossil fuel divestment campaign, so we're always going after the big fossil fuel companies, um, in part because their business plans are currently completely incompatible with a livable planet. Uh, they want to pull out more fossil fuels out of the ground that we can safely burn and keep global warming under manageable levels. So we've been encouraging institutions around the world to pull their money out of those companies and start investing in climate solutions, which raises a really interesting question, which is once you've divested from ExxonMobil or Peabody Coal or something like that, what do you want to invest in? Um, how do you create a return but also do something that is really a net positive for the planet at the same time? So I think the divestment movement for us has kind of opened up space um, from our point of view, uh, to have a lot of activism and interest and talk about reinvestment and mm -hmm. how we put money back into communities, how we invest in things that make the planet better, and how we start really seriously thinking about what, not just a transition, but a just transition away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy would look like. Mm -hmm. And I think that extends beyond the fossil fuel sector, clearly, but into all other areas of business. Um, it's really exciting to see uh, people rethinking the way that business can function um, and really putting a set of social concerns and social values at the center um, of an enterprise rather than just a reckless pursuit of profit. Yeah, the divestment piece is really interesting. Uh, Elsa Wenzel, our managing editor, wrote a piece uh, earlier in the week that summed up some of the uh, uh, COP21 commitments. And uh, she noted that as of early December, there were 500 institutions that were moving away from investing in fossil fuels, which was compared to about 180 uh, just about 15 months ago. And that together they represented $3.4 trillion in assets, uh, real money, as they say. And so this is clearly taking on uh, a new form. So, Shauna, how about the, the notion of lobbyists? One of the things we heard a lot at, about at business events was this uh, hypocrisy in, in some companies where they're uh, talking about their climate leadership on one hand, on the other hand, their public affairs people and government relations people are lobbying against some of the policies that would further or, or you know, decarbonize the economy. What, what does the activist community think about that? Yeah, well, they are right on the pulse, and you know, it was it was really interesting to recognize just how how 
present that is in the consciousness of, of civil society and the activist crowd who are really pushing um, to see business evolve. You know, in these sort of sponsor uh, corporate sponsored solutions forums, there are a lot of companies, including those who were sponsors of COP21, you know, airline companies, um, you know, bottled water companies from France that really, you know, to some extent are are adding questionable societal value, yet we're presenting themselves as, um, you know, as 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 key parts of the climate solution by touting their greenhouse gas emissions reductions and how they're decarbonizing their operations. And you know, a, a lot of the activists with whom I spoke around that particular aspect really felt um, quite strongly that it was more of a greenwashing party than anything, because touting themselves as part of the solution when frankly, these are actions they ought to be taking anyway, um, is, is, is really on the forefront of, of consciousness. And one of the conversations I had really touched upon this topic in a pretty direct way. Um, the, the young man with whom I spoke prefers to name him, remain anonymous, but uh, this is what he had to say. It can feel like greenwashing at, uh, at an event like this uh, to see them promoting the work that they are doing, which obviously I would rather have them doing that work, right. have them working to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions than not. But to see them engage in a public forum like this sort of feels uh, not dishonest, but counterproductive in the sense that this is a, a conference that's about the agenda of moving forward and the kind of partnerships that are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and strengthen the sort of fabric of our society. And, you know, no matter how engaged some of these companies are in reducing their carbon footprint, which I think they should be doing regardless, and uh, again, better to have them doing that than not, um, they aren't necessarily good partners for governments working to try to implement solutions that are good for everybody. Those companies can reduce their greenhouse gas emissions as much as they want, uh, but they're going to be fighting government on a totally different front constantly to avoid regulation, maintain subsidies that are beneficial to their yep. business, and, and again, in, in that way, trying to preserve a different status quo while they're changing the climate status quo. We need to hold businesses accountable to changing both those status quos if we want them to be strong allies in the climate movement. Yeah, I think we're seeing a little bit. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what, we, what really happens. But there certainly was a shift in thinking about uh, business and purpose. And, you know, can a company making, as you call it, a questionable product, a sugary beverage or bottled water, just to name two examples in one sector, um, you know, can they ever really be good climate citizens if they're, you know, taking resources and shipping them around that, you know, if you look at it, not just from the climate perspective, but also from the sustainability perspective, uh, I think these are questions that, much to my surprise, were coming up at events uh, that were, you know, frequented by, by big business and major government officials starting to have that conversation. And I don't know where it's going, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and I mean, within the civil society crowd, certainly there was definitely a um, sort of a, a, a sense that a lot of these big companies kind of want to have it both ways in that they are, are are working to shift the climate status quo and be part of the solution when it comes to reducing 
greenhouse gas emissions, but but subversively or not, uh, uh, really perpetuating another status quo that is not good for for people or the planet in in any way. So, who else did you talk to? Well, you know, in a lot of the conversations I had, I, I kind of closed out with the same question because I'm curious, I was curious what what success looks like, kind of getting to the point you just made about how do we think about the evolution of business and what real uh, effective sustainability leadership uh, looks like. And it was interesting. I actually did a little word count when I transcribed a lot of these interviews. And some of the, the, the concepts that stood out and were used the most frequently were terms like net positive, like regenerative, restorative. And I think that really, Joel, is where we're seeing um, seeing the next era of, of climate, leader, climate leadership and corporate leadership um, is, is, is not just, again, minimizing the negative impact, but really thinking about how can my business create value for society. And going back to my conversation with Jamie Henn, you know, he had something really interesting to say on this. Well, I think, you know, the, the hope is that Paris really sends a clear signal that we're moving the economy in a completely different direction. Um, you know, on the energy side, from fossil fuels to 100% renewables, but really across the board from an economy which is all about waste to an economy which is all about creation, um, creation of value, creation of communities, um, creation of prosperity that's widely and equally shared. Um, and so, for me, uh, you know, I think this idea that we're finally finding businesses that are a net positive for the world and for the environment is really exciting. Um, you know, this idea that you can create a sustainable business model that doesn't just, you know, do a little bit better or recycle or whatever it is, but is really restoring the planet as well. I mean, that's the point of 350.org in many ways, is that we're already past the safe level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and we're already past the levels of destruction of the environment we want to see. This isn't a problem where we say, oh, we can just, you know, wreck the Amazon a bit more and then it will be okay. No, our task is to really restore the Amazon, to restore the creation that we've uh, terribly wasted over the last hundred years or so. So I think that's the role of business uh, going forward, is to really find ways not just to reduce uh, their negative impact, but really focus on how do you increase your positive impact. I'm wondering how different things might be the perspective of some of these critics if they were actually in business and had to manage a, a, a balance sheet and a P&L. Uh, in other words, it's easy to criticize from the outside, but what happens when activists actually get into business? Do, do their views change? Well, it's interesting you bring that up, Joel, because quite a few of the people with whom I spoke were lifelong activists turned uh, clean energy entrepreneurs. Um, and one in particular, I think of Tom Price, who's the director of strategic initiatives at All Power Labs, who's an ally of ours, um, whom, I, whom I asked that very question. And All Power Labs is this great company in Berkeley, California, that makes a uh, digester. It, uh, we actually run uh, a good chunk of the microgrid that we build to power our Verge conference every October uh, in San Jose or Santa Clara. Uh, have a walnut shells that uh, create uh, it's this pallet that has a, allows uh, biomass to go into uh, become methane to power a uh, four-cylinder uh, engine that's basically attached to an extension cord. In other words, to create independent power uh, around the uh, the globe. And so they've created this little. Uh, technology that's going great. And so what did he have to say about the power of business? 
I'll let him speak for himself. When I transitioned from being an activist to working for a for-profit company for the first time after 25 years, I was really struck by something someone told me. They said, capital isn't good or bad. It only wants to grow. And it will grow just as happily clear-cutting a forest as it will installing a solar array. The only thing capital cares about is returns. The transition that's taking place in the cost of renewable energy now makes it possible so that capital can realize significant returns doing basically what we call the right thing. The challenge now is the speed of change is taking place so quickly. We have to make sure that policymakers understand that it's possible to do the right thing and not burden their constituents. And the energy industries need to understand that it shouldn't always be a constant handout. The incentives should only exist just to get things started. And once they're started, the incentives should go away. Um, and then consumers need to understand that they do have choices and they do have a responsibility about their choices. The convergence of those three acts of responsibility um, and ownership is what creates incredible explosive catalytic change. Conditions are ripe for all of them right now. Well, interesting stuff, Shauna. And uh, I have to say, you did your assignment well. So thanks for that. The story is up on Green Biz. I encourage you all to check it out. Um, good work. Thanks again, Joel. Next week is a short one. It's a holiday week, and we're starting to take a close look at what the past year meant for corporate sustainability, as well as what's ahead for 2016. Bob Langer, McDonald's longtime sustainability head, is offering what he calls a sweet and sour outlook for the future. To start with the sweet, he's dipping into what he calls the audacity of recent company goals on things like zero waste, sustainable sourcing, and renewable energy that he says would humble Muhammad Ali. And senior writer Heather Clancy will update us about the moves by many restaurants, including McDonald's again, and Panera Bread to improve animal welfare. So think of antibiotic-free, cage-free, grass-fed, and all that good stuff. Soraya Milconian, producer extraordinaire of this very podcast, is assembling a collection of other cool podcasts you should follow in business and sustainability and beyond. Of course, you're also bound to see more ongoing coverage about the post-Paris Agreement era and all that that means, so stay tuned. Thanks, Elsa. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can find links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Soraya Malconian. We'll be off next week, but Lauren and I and the rest of the gang will be, will be back for a special year-end episode that will run probably on December 29th or 30th. As always, we love to hear your comments, send your feedback, and anything else you want to tell us to 350 at greenbiz.com. And for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business, visit greenbiz.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter called Green Buzz. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, and until next time, have a great day. <laughs>